This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. We're so glad you're here today for a very special episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're joined by former Secretary of State, Senator, and First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton. Sarah, when I tell people about this strange thing that I do for a living, often they will say, Pantsuit Politics, is that like a Hillary Clinton tribute? Yes. (laughs) Well, the truth is, Pantsuit Politics is a name you came up with for an entirely different concept than what we do today. Since this feels like a full circle moment, though, can you set the record straight? Is Pantsuit Politics like a Hillary Clinton tribute? Well, and that so much of how I move about in political spaces is a tribute to her, yes. I mean, I learned a lot about how to be in the world from working with her and watching her over the years. And, you know, you can't separate the word pantsuit from her at this point. (laughs) And you can't separate so much of our politics and conversations about politics from her and her life in American civic culture over, what, four or five decades at this point? But... What is a real gift is when you get to spend time with her and realize the very real human being behind all those myths and perceptions. And she brings such a complexity and richness to everything she does that I absolutely try to mirror that here at Pantsu Politics. Well, we're thrilled that she's here. Secretary Clinton was very generous with her time and perspective in this conversation that includes everything from the objectives of Israel's military to the role of expertise and diplomacy in an increasingly post-truth world, to how she is processing 2023 as the year of the girl. So here is Secretary Hillary Clinton. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. 
Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Secretary Clinton, welcome to Pantsy Politics. We are thrilled to have you. I am thrilled to be here with the two of you. It's great. Now we're going to start off with your decades of experience and expertise inside the Middle East. And, you Mm -hmm. know, with that perspective, the first thing we wanted to ask you is, what do you see as similar continuing patterns in the current conflict in Gaza, and what do you see as different? Because we've had experts on who say, like, everything is different now. This is a new era. And we wanted mm. your opinion on that. Well, I think it's a really good question because there are both similarities and differences. And, you know, among the similarities is that there has not yet been a resolution of the right of the Palestinians to have a homeland of their own. There has not yet been a guarantee of security to Israel so that it can live in peace with its neighbors. There has been a lot of hopeful moments going back to the very beginning of, you know, Israel's uh, founding as a state when both Israel and the Palestinians were offered states and Israel accepted and the Palestinians then called mostly Arabs, but we know them as Palestinians, uh, refused. And the wars that were fought and the extraordinary pain that was uh, experienced by people in that region. And so when I look at it, I, I just did a podcast with my husband for the finale of my podcast, You and Me Both, where he recounted his own efforts and experiences, you know, starting really from the beginning of his administration in 1993 all the way to the last days of his second term in uh, early 2001, the offer that was made to the Palestinians then under the leadership of Yasser Arafat for a state that was now unimaginable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Literally all the territory they'd been offered, a small portion being kept by Israel, made up for by territory inside Israel. And it just breaks my heart that uh, the Israelis offered that and the Palestinians under Arafat just could not find a way to yes. Mm. And then there has been so much turmoil uh, since then, because I, I think, as Bill explains on my podcast, you know, once that offer was made and declined, Israelis were like, well, we can't do more than that. There, there's no way we can offer more than that. That is our best offer. And uh, we don't know how to deal with this now. And unfortunately, there was what was called an intifada, which is an uprising, resistance, a lot of violence. And as you know, when uh, Ariel Sharon was prime minister, he unilaterally withdrew from Gaza and 
forcefully resettled 50,000 Israelis leaving Gaza to be governed by the Palestinians. And one of the most tragic outcomes of that particular move was that the Israelis had a very flourishing industry of greenhouses. They were a big supplier out of Gaza to the Middle East, to Europe, even beyond of, you know, fruits, vegetables, flowers, and the most extreme members of the resistance, the rejectionists, now we know them as Hamas, destroyed all of that. So it's so difficult when you look at the one step forward, two steps back uh, history. There was another effort when I was Secretary of State. We got Netanyahu to do a settlement freeze. We couldn't make much progress. There was more efforts made when, you know, John Kerry followed me. And then when Trump became president, the Palestinians were basically out in the cold. You know, the everybody thought there's no way we can deal with them. The Arabs wanted to deal directly, the Arab states like in the Gulf, uh, but also in North Africa, wanted to deal directly with Israel. So all of this has been uh, a tragic historical unfolding. And the similarities are we still don't have any kind of peace effort that would engage the Palestinian leadership that renounced violence against Israel. Actually, Bill and I were in Gaza uh, when he was president and saw the Palestinian Liberation Organization vote to take out a provision in their charter calling for the destruction of Israel you know, committing to nonviolence, committing to a peace process. Um, But the leaders who try to make peace, whether it's Anwar Sadat, who made the peace between Egypt and Israel when President Carter was in office, or Yitzhak Rabin, who was very heroic with the Oslo Accords and then looking for peace, both of them were murdered. And uh, Sadat was murdered by an Egyptian who was radical and thought he was selling out uh, Egypt to the Israelis, and Rabin was murdered by an extreme Israeli settler who thought Rabin was selling out Israel to the Palestinians. So the violence is not new. What is new is the very close connection between Hamas and Iran and the efforts by Iran to create pressure on Israel and beyond that on, on the West through the use of its proxies, Hamas, Hezbollah in the north, uh, in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen, who are now you know, firing missiles at Israel, firing missiles at uh, ships going through that very narrow strait at uh, their southern border. So there, there are some new features to this, but I think people need to understand there is no way to make peace with Hamas. It is not in Hamas's interests, as they see it, to make peace. They are a dedicated terrorist organization to the destruction of Israel, and now as part of this broader Iranian effort to undermine uh, not just Israel, but undermine the West, they are not going to in any way be the leaders that could, uh, at the end of this war, possibly chart a more peaceful, better future for the Palestinians. Given that Hamas does not exist in a vacuum, given this connection to Iran, all of these other proxies, and the fact that it's always difficult to eradicate terrorism, 
What are the objectives here and how do you measure them? You know, we understand that everything that has unfolded beginning on October 7th has come at such enormous human cost. Mm-hmm. How do we know when there has been a just pursuit of doing whatever can be done to take Hamas out of power? That's a really important question, Beth. I think anyone who sees what's happening uh, right now has to feel or should feel, shall we say, should feel, you know, great concern and compassion, both for the Israelis, but also for the Palestinians. But what I want people to understand is Hamas cares nothing for Palestinian lives. And I don't say that lightly. It's it's like Russia emptying its prison, you know, drafting people to go into its war in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin doesn't care about his own people that, you know, he is sacrificing in his savage uh, invasion of Ukraine. Well, Hamas doesn't care about the Palestinian people. I've seen interviews, you know, obviously translated interviews of the leaders of Hamas. And the political leaders are sitting very comfortably in Doha, in Qatar. But they're also, you know, doing videos about how they will do it again and again. October 7th was just the beginning. They will never stop. And when they're asked questions that you or I might ask, like, well, what about the Palestinian people in Gaza? You built hundreds of miles of tunnels. Did you not think to build bomb shelters or not put your uh, munitions under schools and hospitals and mosques? Their answer is, that's not our problem. That's not our concern. In fact, I heard one of them say, that's up to the UN, the UN, for heaven's sakes, the UN to protect Palestinian civilians. We know they use civilians as shields, and we know that they are, in the name of martyrdom, willing to sacrifice innocent people and children, which is so tragic. So from, I think, a perspective of when does this end, I believe when Israel has killed or captured the significant military leadership of Hamas that is still hiding in those tunnels. From what I know, they have killed or captured uh, a number of uh, such leaders. But remember, Hamas could end this at any time. You know, Hamas could very well say, We've accomplished our goal. We've turned much of the world against Israel, thanks to videos on TikTok and propaganda from Iran and and others. So we want safe passage. We're getting out of here. And here are your hostages. Goodbye. They could do that at any time. But if you are the leader of a country and put aside who the leader of Israel is, because I want him to go as soon as as possible. But if you're the leader of a country and you've been uh, so brutally attacked and you've had ceasefires over and over again, I negotiated a ceasefire when I was secretary of state in November of 2012. So you've had ceasefires. You had a ceasefire all the way up until Hamas broke it on October 7th. And you're hearing what all of us are hearing, that they don't intend to stop. They're still coming after you. If you can at least try to get their leadership That doesn't mean it's the end of the struggle because it's an ideology as well as a, you know, military uh, movement. So I think there will hopefully be sooner instead of later an end to the fighting with the capture or killing of uh, Hamas leaders and hopefully 
uh, the freeing of the remaining, you know, 140 or so hostages. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. As I was listening to that conversation with you and President Clinton, which I highly recommend to everyone listening, I found it so informative. I thought about the conversations I've been having with my own 14-year-old who's moved far to the left of me and the conversations that are happening in America around this conflict. And I thought, man, it feels like we need to be listening to people with expertise and a history on this issue. But the conversation, the dialogue, especially on social media and on the Internet, 
It's like if you have expertise, you have power, and the power makes you inherently, like, unbelievable. You can't trust somebody with power. You can't trust somebody. So it's like it's excluding people (laughs) by definition with expertise on this issue. And I wonder how you think about that. I think there's a generational component, but I know that you— you started your long civic life protesting and speaking out. And how, how do you put those pieces together? How do we say expertise matters? We understand the generational critique. It just feels like it's at a boiling point right now. And I wonder how you think about that. Well, I, I think you're absolutely describing the situation that we are living with. And it's not only, you know, your 14-year-old, it's, you know, young people generally. First of all, We've learned through surveys that many, many young people, I've seen numbers between 20 and 40 percent, don't know about the Holocaust or don't believe it. I mean, this is a failure of education of the first degree, because how can you forget, you know, one of the, well, the most horrible mass murder that we know of in in certainly recent history, so there's a big gap, and you don't have to be an expert to know about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just part of what you should know about the 20th century. But a lot of our kids and young people, when I say, you know, kids, you're a teenager, but, you know, I'm teaching at Columbia University now, and there are a lot of people, a lot of students who don't have the history, don't have the context, don't know the laws of war, uh, a lot of, you know, important points. And I, I think several things. One, there's a real preference for the victim. Mm-hmm. And and I get that. I mean, if, if you are young and you see someone who you think is being victimized by someone more powerful, you know, you have a, a kind of a visceral reaction. Like, that's not right. Why, why is that person being picked on? You know, maybe they're being picked on because they're LGBTQ or they're being picked on because of their race or their religion. Or maybe you think they're being picked on in a sense of, you know, Israel exercising self-defense against the people living in Gaza. There's also a real lack of understanding of what Hamas is. You know, people try to portray Hamas as uh, some kind of freedom fighter, some kind of uh, anti-colonial, anti-oppression group. And, you know, they have never been part of a peace process because they are only about literally ending Israel. And as the spokesperson, former Admiral John Kirby at the White House said the other day, people are going to throw around the word genocide it more properly applies to what Hamas's goals are, the complete elimination of Israel and of the Jewish people. That is their goal, which is genocidal. Israel, on the other hand, again, young people may not know this or pay attention to it. You know, the the rules of war permit Israel to defend itself, and it must try to minimize civilian casualties. It has you know, done things like give warnings, drop pamphlets, do loudspeakers, trying to move people out of, you know, areas that are going to be targets. Russia didn't do that when it invaded Ukraine. And I don't see young people protesting Russia. Russia has bombed hospitals. Russia has bombed schools. Russia has tortured and raped its way through Ukraine. If you really are on the side of the oppressed, Ukraine is oppressed. I've seen the same thing with what Russia and Iran did in Syria, literally bombing Syria into oblivion, destroying ancient towns like Aleppo, forcing millions of people to uh, have to flee for their lives. I don't see people protesting against Russia and Iran over Syria. So 
There's something about this, and I believe it is because the propaganda on this issue has frankly been very effective. You go look at TikTok and other social media sites. There's no nuance. There's no history. There's no context. Israel, bad. Hamas, good. Palestinians, always good. No kind of, you know, even objective effort to try to, you know, find where both sides have done what they should or shouldn't because Hamas is, you know, it's got its own propaganda tool. And of course, Iran and Russia, of course, who's weighed in on the side of Hamas, China, which always wants to upset the United States and undermine our position. So the propaganda is incredibly powerful. But when young people chant or protest in favor of Hamas, I like to ask them, oh, would you want to live under Hamas? Mm. Would you want to live under their disregard for human life? Would you want to live under their uh, theological misogyny? Would you want to live as an LGBTQ person and probably be executed for your sexual orientation? I mean, there is no counter propaganda. And of course, the death in Gaza is horrible. It's horrible. And, you know, I was in favor of these humanitarian pauses. I I would like to see, you know, more aid in, more hostages out, more safety for the Palestinian people. But no one should be on the side of Hamas. Uh, It's like being on the side of ISIS. They are the same kind of theologically driven terrorist group. And so a lot of young people are caught up in what they view as being on the side of the little guy against the big guy, um, going to your point about expertise is so disregarded these days. You know, people didn't want to take the vaccine because they saw on, you know, some site on uh, social media that Bill Gates had put a chip in it. I mean, just nonsense stuff. And so we are in a post-truth world. So even if you know something and you can prove it, like the Holocaust happened, The voices that too many people, and particularly young people, are paying attention to have agendas. Mm. You know, the 12 biggest sites pushing anti-vaccine information were making money. They were selling herbs or they were selling veterinary uh, medicine or whatever they were doing. They were making money off of people's gullibility. Well, here you've got people promoting a political, ideological agenda that doesn't benefit the United States, doesn't benefit your child, doesn't benefit my students at Columbia, but does benefit Iran, Russia, China, autocracy, terrorism. And we are in a terrible moment right now because those of us who say, look, you know, life is complicated. History is complicated. People should be held to the highest standards. That's what I've said consistently about Israel. You can keep all these thoughts in your head at one time. Hamas is a terrorist organization that committed a barbaric, savage attack. Israel has a right to defend itself. And under the laws of war, Israel must do everything it can to minimize civilian loss. But then you have to also add, but Hamas doesn't care about civilians, so it's really difficult to minimize civilian loss. I mean, these are what an education is supposed to give you, the ability to kind of parse and think and draw conclusions. The power, the addictive power of social media is shaping minds in a way that we have never, ever, ever seen in human history. I somehow 
got a peek into a corner of the internet that believes Taylor Swift could just stop what's happening in Gaza if she would speak about it. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Oh, no. Hello. I mean, yeah, that's exactly right, Beth. I mean, between some people on the internet, you know, attacking Taylor Swift, who is a really wonderful human being who has got great talent and has been successful, good for her, you've got people endowing her with powers she could never have. It's crazy. Well, and I wanted to ask you about this. I I wonder if this propaganda is so effective in part because my generation has not seen a lot of diplomacy or heard a lot of pro-diplomacy discussion. I look at the way the administration has responded to what's happening with Israel, and I see President Biden looking for that combination of pressure and release, that we give Israel enough space and respect that it wants to listen to us when we have critiques. Mm-hmm. I wonder how you would share with our audience and with all of us who who don't have that diplomatic experience, like, what are the alternatives here? If he were behaving like an activist, which is what I hear mm-hmm. a lot of people calling for him to do, what would the result of mm-hmm. that be? It would be exactly as you are implying. It would be the Israelis feeling abandoned, uh, feeling that, you know, their losses, which if you look at it in terms of a proportion of population, they lost like 1,200 people. That would be a loss of like 65,000 for us in America. Mm. And if somebody had come across one of our borders and killed 65,000 Americans, we would want our friends to be on our side as they were after 9-11. And so you would basically be setting up exactly as you said, a situation where we would have no influence. You know, if if people, for example, had said about us after 9-11, you know, too bad, we don't care, go your own way, you know, whatever. Would that have changed our attitude? I think it would have hardened our attitudes. It would have made us even more determined and more stubborn about doing things. And frankly, we did some things that don't make, you know, a lot of uh, sense in in retrospect, basically out of that emotion that we were mm-hmm. experiencing. And yeah, people can say in a very rational, you know, time, oh, but, you know, don't act out of rage, don't act out of fear. But you know what? When people are hurting and they've been attacked, it's really hard to find your way forward. And so with the Israelis, I think what Biden has tried to do is exactly as you described. And that's the way diplomacy with your friends and oftentimes your adversaries has to work. Mm -hmm. You are supportive or you are quiet in public and you are critical and pushing in private. And you are much more likely to get the results you eventually want if you are not embarrassing or shaming or rejecting the counterpart in your diplomacy. In this case, it'd be the U.S. and Israel. But even if Biden had rejected and said, oh, we're very sorry all these people were murdered. We're very sorry that, you know, you're in a state of trauma, but you you can't defend yourself. Don't go into Gaza because it's got two million people and it's incredibly dense. And you're going to, because it's war, you're going to end up killing innocent people. Would they have listened? No. So what I think has been accomplished by Biden being very uh, embracing of Israel, both by Biden, by Blinken, by others who I've talked to in the administration, you know, we did get those humanitarian pauses. You know, the military in Israel is saying, like, 
we can't stop. We, we know now where some of these people are. We know that they have fled their positions in the north heading south. And the Israeli government, under U.S. pressure, basically said, no, we're going to stop. We're, we're stopping the fighting. So, yes. And, and I, I think the other important piece of this is what happens the day after. You know, at, at some point, hopefully, as I say, sooner instead of later, the Israelis will have captured or killed as many leaders of Hamas as they can possibly reach. And remember, too, the Egyptians are not opening their borders to the Palestinians mm -hmm. because they don't want the possibility of terrorists coming out with innocent civilians into Egypt. So their borders are closed. Lebanon is not opening its borders to the Palestinians. So the war has to end. And then we have to say, what's next? And the United States will be the only country in my opinion, that will have any influence on Israel. There has to be a change of leadership in Israel. The intelligence failures are just beyond anything I've read about. There have been a lot of intelligence failures. I teach about this at Columbia. But the intelligence failures here were so profound. So the government has to go. Netanyahu has to go. There has to be accountability for all of the mistakes that were made, the intelligence that was ignored. And just as an aside, because, you know, your, your, you know, podcast is called Pantsuit Politics. The warnings that were the most persistent and detailed were from women intelligence officers, and they were ignored. Mm. And so I, I think there will have to be a huge and it must be a huge reckoning in Israel. And then the United States will have to try to piece together a Palestinian authority that can govern Gaza again. We'll have to put together the money to rebuild Gaza. We'll have to figure out how to get Israel to even talk about some kind of, you know, new process that could give life to a potential you know, state for the Palestinians in the midst of their own trauma. So your question is so important. You know, as a, as a former secretary of state, there were some things I said in public where I blasted people, where I questioned people. But a lot of it is done literally behind the scenes where you're trying to move people to some kind of outcome. And it's really hard work. And in our time of you know, constant posting about everything in the universe, not being able to talk about what you're trying to accomplish, then people don't even know you did it. Um, it's a really difficult balancing act for diplomacy. And, you know, there was, you know, I and I gave the Trump administration credit for the Abraham Accords, you know, making making deals between Israel and various Arab states like the UAE and Part of the reason we believe that Hamas acted when it did was to blow up a potential deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So there is some diplomacy, the results of which you can point to. Uh, but a lot of it, you know, you didn't know it was happening when it happened. And, there, you know, you can't hear the dog that doesn't bark. Uh, so it's kind of a in the old days the old days when I was younger, uh, when you didn't have instantaneous communication, I used to tell Henry Kissinger, the late Henry Kissinger, that, you know, his secret mission to China to try to open up China to the world 
and to create normal relations between China and the United States could never happen in the cell phone era. You, you know, you can't go and hide out in Pakistan for a while, then sneak over to China. You know, somebody at an airport's going to see you. Somebody serving you food is going to see you. They're going to take a picture. Who's tracking your flight. <laughs> they track your flight. I mean, you know, so it's diplomacy is much, much harder. That doesn't make it less important. In fact, it's probably mm-hmm. more important because there's so much misinformation and, yes, disinformation that people have to contend with. Well, that's what I was thinking about, how your public life and your experience just sits at the intersection of so many of these things that, you know, diplomacy doesn't lend itself to social media in the same way activism does, that we have this growth of social media and this need that people have because they're living in this time of loneliness. You know, I'm waiting for your follow-up, It Takes a Village to Be a Person, uh, (laughs) to It Takes a Village to Raise a Child, because it feels like in this misinformation, this post-truth world where what can you believe, what can you trust? I mean, you have, like, the Venn diagram of your life touches on so many of these circles. So how are you thinking about this moment in American history where we have institutions, distrust in institutions, disinformation in a post-truth world, social media, loneliness, and this election that could be the future of our democracy on the line. I am really worried. You know, I I do like to say, you know, I'm an optimist who worries a lot and uh, tribute to my late friend Madeleine Albright, who famously coined that phrase. But I am really, really worried. And I'm worried because certain of the phenomena you just described, Sarah, are cultural, they're psychological, uh, they're technological. They probably would be happening regardless of our politics. Uh, You know, technology always changes how people interact, how they see themselves, uh, how they plan their lives. I mean, when you went from the horse to the car or you invented television and all of a sudden it was not just a uh, you know, a special machine. It was in everybody's home. I mean, all of these technological advances, both in social life and uh, military life, cause changes. And so technology drives a lot. How people are making choices in their own lives, the loneliness epidemic, which does seem to track the rise of uh, screen time and the addictive nature of social media. All of that would have consequences. But as I tried to talk about in my article uh, about the weaponization of loneliness, there's a political agenda to keep us divided, to keep us frightened, to keep us uncertain, to have us question everything, our institutions, medical advice, everything. Now, I'm not one who says every institution and every leader and every, you know, medical expert is right. I mean, I think you have to be well enough, you know, educated, confident enough to be able to question uh, where appropriate. But it's really hard to run a democracy if you have no trust, if you if you can't find in yourself the capacity to trust your neighbors, to trust your, you know, colleagues at work, to trust your you know, local government, your state or national government. I mean, everybody is in this crouch. Like people are coming after me all the time. It's like a paranoia that I think has been, you know, part of the American, you know, skepticism about government from the very beginning. But now it just seems to be much more prevalent. And as I said in my article, you know, very clever 
malicious people like Steve Bannon have figured out ways to weaponize that. So let me take an example from, you know, best question about diplomacy. Well, we all know that Donald Trump, you know, met with uh, the leader of North Korea because he told us and he went and there were pictures and we saw it. Nothing happened. But I bet if you were to question people, the image of Trump being there with him, people would think, oh, wow, that was great. No, it wasn't great. Didn't stop his missile program. Didn't stop his nuclear weapons program. Didn't stop the oppression and starvation of his own people who, you know, take great risks to try to escape his hermit kingdom. But people would think, oh, there he was. And so we don't know what to believe. And if you're a clever enough demagogue, you can get people to believe all kinds of things. And you can repeat a message, which is really the definition of propaganda, that, you know, turns a lie into a believable fact. So I really am worried because left to our own devices, we would figure out, as every generation has had to figure out, how to deal with new technology. I mean, the Industrial Revolution, people flooded off of farms into cities. It was horrible at first. I mean, you know, they were living in terrible conditions. Little children were working in factories, something that, you know, some states are trying to bring Mm. back, frankly. But, you know, it was horrible. But eventually kind of people began to organize themselves, stand up for themselves, create pressure for better working conditions, better living conditions. Left to our own devices, I think we could do that. But we are being pressured into thinking that we can't work together. We can't cross partisan divides. We can't find common ground because it's all or nothing. You're either all on my side or you are all on the other side, whether it's from the right or the left, wherever it's coming from. And what is particularly troubling is how certain elements within our country's politics have made common cause with adversaries, whether it's people on the far left chanting, you know, from the river to the sea, which despite their efforts to explain it away is uh, a call for the end of Israel, um, who are in league with Iran and Hamas, whether they know it or not, they are, or people on the right who are trying to, you know, remove our support for Ukraine because for some bizarre reason, They either don't view Putin as a threat or they kind of like that he is a white Christian avatar that, uh, you know, is going after gay people and removing protections for women in uh, Russian legislation and all the rest of it. So there are these really unholy, dangerous alliances between our far right and our far left. And I just want to say a word about Biden. I mean, part of the problem that Biden has is not that he's old. He's old. Okay. That's, that's an issue. It's a reality. He's gotten more done as an old man that, you know, many people, you know, half his age could have gotten done. So true. But he's boring. And why is he boring? Because he gets up every day and does a job and he models responsible leadership and he's not a performer. And, and he, you know, he's not constantly in our face saying something outrageous so that we all are going, oh, my God, I don't know what he's going to do next. And we can't turn away. It's a huge problem because performance politics, whether it was Boris Johnson in London or Donald Trump in the United States, is a form of, you know, entertainment that kind of 
helps people avoid being citizens. You know, I'm I'm a consumer of entertainment and this is entertaining to me. You know, Biden, yeah, he passed all this legislation and, you know, they're fixing my bridge and they're, you know, putting a chip factory in the neighboring county and they're putting people to work and they're doing more clean energy and they've dropped the price of insulin and, and now they're dropping the price of other pharmaceutical drugs, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's not very entertaining. It may help my life. Uh, if somebody can actually make the connection for me, but it's not entertaining. So this is a, you know, this is a multi-layered problem that we have to figure out how to deal with. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered mineral filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today. 
with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. a positive trend as we kind of move to close with some delight here (laughs) is that in 2023 women have been very clear about what our entertainment is we wanted to ask you about the year of the girl and beyonce and taylor and the barbie movie uh, Mm -hmm. and girl math and girl dinner and and all the ways (laughs) in which there has been a counterpoint to that sense of loneliness and that hunkering down And this real building of community around things that are communal experiences. And I wonder if having our boring, competent administration and our our fun concerts and tours and movies can help us chart a healthier path forward. I love that question. You know, Beth, I thought about that a lot because my daughter took my granddaughter and her cousin to a Taylor Swift concert. And, you know, Chelsea, who has been to big events, you know, from inaugurations to World Cups to Super Bowls, to all these, said there was nothing like Amazing. it. She had never experienced anything like that Taylor Swift concert. And it was the sense of community. And it was the the joy of these, you know, little girls, teenagers, and not so, you know, young uh, fans. And so I, I think you make a good point. And it, and it was true with Beyonce and it was true with Barbie. There was a, a kind of social rebuke to people who basically try to dismiss the lives of women and girls. And I found it fascinating. And again, this is, you know, social media uh, analysis. The right attacked both Beyonce and Taylor Swift and Barbie. Mm-hmm. And and you, I think, have put your finger on one of the reasons why. Because if there's a healthy community, yep. if people come together first and foremost because of a love of an entertainer, then at least they're in a community. And certainly Taylor Swift has said, okay, it's not enough just to come to my concert. I want you to register to vote. And oh my goodness, the right hated mm-hmm. that. Or if Barbie is, you know, filling our movie screens and people are seeing the kind of subversive message that Barbie is portraying and America Ferrara's amazing speech at the end about what do you expect from a woman? I mean, you know, we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. I think that is a kind of social statement. And of course, Beyonce, you know, a beautiful, young, vibrant Black woman just out there telling her truth, being who she Mm -hmm. is, is similarly upsetting as we see from, you know, the right attacks on social media. So what do we do to try to take that sense of a communal experience and turn it into community? How do we get people to say, I want to feel like I felt at that concert or watching that movie of the concert or, you know, going to Barbie, whatever it might be. And I think that's one of our our big challenges. And I don't 
pretend to have any answers, but I think the answer is there because, you know, if you look at, you know, de Tocqueville, if you look at research on everything from uh, social capital to communities able to solve problems together, it has to start at the local grassroots level. People have to be willing to sit at tables where they don't agree with each other. And to go back to your diplomacy question, Beth, when, you know, when my husband decided that we'd get into uh, the peace process in Northern Ireland and appointed George Mitchell to be the, the negotiator, he sat for a year at a table with the parties on the opposite sides who would not talk to each other. Then there would be a breakthrough where they would say to George, you know, tell so-and-so on the other side of the table that what they said last week was deeply offensive. And then George would have to turn and say, so-and-so says what you said was deeply offensive. The slow, boring work of diplomacy. And there was nothing to report day after day, month after month, until there was something. Mm. And and I kind of feel like we need to get a big collective shot of patience and try to figure out how we make some common ground with people. We're not going to be able to do it with everybody. I mean, we have our own ideologues and and religious rejectionists and partisans in our own country. But there are enough people, I still believe, who would come together to try to resolve things. You know, we could resolve immigration in my view, relatively soon, people on both sides would have to give. That's what a democracy requires. You compromise, you give a little, and you know you come to a solution. But I voted for immigration reform when I was in the Senate, and George W. Bush said he would sign it, and it passed overwhelmingly in the Senate, and they wouldn't even give it a vote in the House because they'd rather have a problem than a solution. So we have a lot of work to do to both create political pressure on the anti-democratic forces within our country in order to open the space for community. And that doesn't mean we all agree, but it means we are respectful, we listen, and we try to, you know, find common ground. Secretary Clinton, thank you so much for all your time. This has been such a pleasure. I have to tell you, it's a pleasure talking to you. And I really want to just end by telling you how much I love your podcast and doing a podcast myself, you and me both. I know it's not easy. You do it twice a week. I do it once a week. But I think that it's part of the effort to try to keep a conversation yeah. going and to give people a chance to hear, you know, maybe something they agree with, but hopefully something they don't agree with, but which causes them to think. And if we can do that, heaven help us. Maybe we can make progress again. Well, my favorite thing about podcasts is you need patience. You can't skim it just to find something to be mad about. And it builds trust yeah. over time. All the things that we've yeah. been talking about throughout this right. conversation. It's a long it's a long form media that's a, quite, I think, a good contribution. And then you also said to Tocqueville, and I thought, oh, 2024, that's a good year to reread that, I think. I think that's a Pantsuit Politics book club idea right there. And there's a book that goes along with it which is called Habits of the Heart, oh. because de Tocqueville basically said that Americans have developed what he called the habits of the heart of cooperation, of, you know, banding together in uh, local communities to solve problems, whether it's, you know, helping to raise a barn or take care of somebody who has been orphaned or whatever it might be. 
So yeah, habits of the heart. That's what we need to get back to. Okay, I like that. I'm going to do that. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you all. So great to talk to you. Thanks for what you're doing. Thank you so much to Secretary Clinton for joining us. Thanks is not a big enough word, but thanks to her team for their efforts to make this conversation happen. And as always, you can join the conversation by writing us at hello at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. We'll be back with you on Tuesday. Until then, have the best weekend available to you. Pantsu Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Pinton is our director of community engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. Catherine Vollmer. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Linda Daniel. Emily Neasley. The Pettins! Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Emily Helen Olson. Lee Shea McDonough. Morgan McHugh. Jen Ross. Sabrina Drago. Becca Dorval. Christina Cordararo. Shannon Frawley. The Adair family. Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.